retreat. Um, and we come from the Strode Mills Mennonite Church there along 522 um, between Lordstown and Baytown. My high school teacher um, at the Bethel School in Big Valley, I've been, I've been there, enjoy working with young people, I enjoy their energy, their uh, drive to accomplish, and uh, it helps keep me young, I guess. Um, and I enjoy working with them. Do some work for a mason during the summer, which is a good change of pace. Do some concrete work and so on uh, during the summertime. Tonight I'm going to talk about music, one of God's greatest gifts to man. But whenever God makes something good, the better it is, the better or the worse Satan's alternative is to that. Music is a massive subject. A very controversial subject. It's a personal subject. Um, in that context, it's probably a bit of a gray issue. But I think as we look at the scriptures and endeavor to apply some principles to music, that the gray area can, can maybe go from this big to this big, perhaps. I don't have all the answers, but we're going to look at some biblical principles, some practical principles, um, some tools to help us evaluate music. Um, I love the hard su subject at school, the algebras, the physics, etc. But I really don't anticipate most of my students are going to remember all those hard equations when they leave school. If I call them up five years later and ask them to give me this, this, and this, I, they probably won't remember that. But the benefit of those difficult subjects is out of the intense study of that, of the depth of those things, you tend to come away with some practical uh, analysis tools, troubleshooting tools, etc. come from doing those things. And so what I want them to remember is the, uh, the simple ways of looking at information, analyzing it, and working through it. And so this evening and tomorrow morning, we want to spend some time trying to find a few tools that aren't, aren't real deep and philosophical, but simply fairly practical as we relate to music. We're not all going to agree on everything, and, and you don't have to draw my lines, but I'm encouraging you to draw your own, to draw some lines. I, I, I find in a lot of our conservative circles, there's a lot of young people, especially with no line. There, there, there's anything goes. One of the things that scares me is when I was a teenager in the late 90s, um, if I, I was a, grew up on Southern Gospel and was pulled into the country world, um, so I could listen to the radio. But if I wanted to buy music, I had to go to a store, I had to pick the CD off the rack, I had to walk in front of a cashier, look her in the eye, and buy the music. And I knew that would be a bad testimony. That was a tremendous deterrent to buying that kind of music. Today, you have anything you want in about 10 seconds. Anything you want. And the question is, can we, can we discern things in that 10 seconds? Or are we open to anything that goes, secular or Christian? Music is a very negative uh, subject, and that's where we're going to be tonight. But tomorrow we're going to spend some time thinking about the very positive aspects of music. It can be used greatly for good. It can be used greatly for bad. So how do we, how do we train ourselves in analyzing anything, um, music, 
things we watch, as our brother was talking about, things we read, etc. Well, it begins in our thinking. It begins in our minds. And God and Satan are vying for your mind. That's really what they're after. How do we get to, or how, how do we, how do each of them, how does God and how does Satan endeavor to get to our thinking? Well, it is through the five senses. The five senses are what? Um, what we see, what we hear, what we touch, what we smell, and what we taste. Those are the five avenues that God has to your mind and, and the same avenues that Satan has to your mind and altering our thinking. What's frustrating about the whole scenario is because of the fall, Satan gets us by default, right? God is a God of, created us with a God of, uh, uh, with a will. He wants us to choose him. That's what he's after. Satan gets you if you don't do anything. God says, I want you to choose me. I want you to ponder and think about what, I, what I've done for you, what I've given you, and then I want you to choose me. And so there's this continual internal struggle between the flesh and the spirit. And it's going to be here till we die or till the Lord comes again. You're always going to be dealing with that battle. And again, it begins here through our five senses. Jesus said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. All beginning here with our thinking. For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he, Proverbs says. Seeing, touching, smelling, tasting, and hearing. Our culture as a whole has lost this battle. Satan has won the battle. In terms of our culture. I'd like to take you through a little bit of history. Um, and this can be really deep and philosophical. And I don't want to do that. But let's think about something. Ancient times up until about 1789. We would call this the pre-modern era. In that era of time. Um, absolute truth was found through revelation. It didn't matter where you went in the world. No matter what religion you were. There was a God out there somewhere. That we accessed. And he told us about life. Whether it was Buddha. Uh, Muhammad or Allah or God, whatever. There was all, all humanity was looking towards something out there to bring truth to us. About 1789, the founding of America, by the way, we get to what we call the modern era or the, the idea of enlightenment. And this is where we said we're smart enough, we can rationalize, we can figure it all out between our brains and our science. We're going to access, we're going to find absolute truth. Into about the 1970s, though, we have where we're at right now, the postmodern era, which is where truth is not revealed or found, but created. Absolute truth is a fable or failed experiment. How many genders are there? Two. There's 60-some out there that we have, our culture has created. It's no longer revealed or found, rather it's made. And whatever you want to make up is fine for you, and whatever I make up is fine for me. And that's where our culture is at. Our thinking process and culture has been dominated by the devil and his ways. Now, I want to think a bit about the mind very quickly. Um, if we think about our brain, we have several, and I don't know a whole lot about this. wish I knew more. But you have the frontal lobe, the prefrontal cortex, the temporal lobe. And your brain is doing all this thinking in that little space 
uh, it doesn't weigh that terribly much, but 20% of your energy and oxygen goes to your brain. So you do lose weight thinking. How much? I'm not sure, but you can burn calories thinking. 20% of total energy and oxygen goes to the workings of the brain, that control center created by God. The frontal lobe, the front here, is your center of thinking. The temporal lobe is more the seat of the emotions, where your character is, perhaps, etc. And the prefrontal cortex, which is a bit lower in the front, is involved in the, the managing complex processes like reasoning and logic and math and problem-solving, etc. Which leads me to a story I want to quickly relate to you. It's called uh, The Strange Case of Phinehas Gage. He was in 1848. He worked for a railroad company, and he was part of the blasting uh, work. And so the men prior, before him would drill a hole. Someone would put a bunch of gunpowder down in that hole, and his job was to come along with that rod you see and tamp that gunpowder tight down in the hole. And I'm assuming the fuse was in there somewhere. And then you'd walk away and blow the place up and go on with continued construction. One day, September 13th of 1848, he was doing his thing. He was tamping that with that big rod. And somehow he created a spark. And this, the hole that he was, drop, uh, that he was tamping exploded. That rod went through the side of his head, that whole rod. It's about an um, inch and a quarter in diameter. It weighs 13, over 13 pounds, 3 feet 7 inches long. It went in the left side of his face and out through his head. Now, his friends assumed he would be dead. He was conscious when they got there. He, he made it. He lost his eye, as you can see. But there's where that, uh, that rod went through his head. Now, I want you to notice where it hit on its way through, that prefrontal cortex, that place of reasoning and rationalizing was affected by this, uh, by this rod. What's noted, after this happened to this man, and he actually recovered, which is amazing on all scales that he survived, he was a changed man. He went from a very nice, personable don't know if he was a Christian or not, but he was a very decent person to being very vulgar and vile and filthy. He divorced his wife, etc. Now, I don't know how God judges that. I left that up to God. But he, he turned into something completely different because the front of his brain was altered by that rod right there. His thinking and reasoning changed. I want to think a bit about music, a tie, a tying to that a bit. Your brain works, and there's a couple different, many different brain waves, but we're going to talk about two of them. One of them is the beta waves. The beta waves is the, where the frontal lobe is analyzing any incoming information. Hopefully, if you're still in school, when the teacher's lecturing, you're in beta mode where you are analyzing what's coming at him. Now, if you're falling asleep, uh, not so well. But you're analyzing and thinking about the information that's coming in. The alpha waves, or what people call maybe an alpha state, is when your brain is just chilled out. You're relaxed. And there's no analysis happening. And anything can come in without you doing a lot of processing to what's coming into your mind. Drugs and alcohol damage that lobe, that prefrontal cortex. We had a man coming to our church. He doesn't come anymore. Uh, but he came for a while, and he, he was nice. He shook your hand. He would sit. But he had fried his brains on drugs. And he just kind of spaced out, kind of starey. He 
Again, you talk to him. Again, I don't know how God judges that. But he had fried that frontal cortex on drugs past, in his past. And I want to think about, we're going to spend some time thinking about music and how it affects the brain. And at times, many times, depending on the characteristics of the music, it puts us into this kind of state where we're just chilling and we do whatever comes along. So if you can envision a, a rock concert, that's what you see. People doing whatever comes along in this state of they're not analyzing what's happening because of what's going on in the music. Thoughts create feelings. Feelings create emotions. And thoughts and feelings and emotions are moral because they're part of who I am. Character, who I am. My character ultimately lies in my thinking, in my processing. What I do with the thoughts that come my way ultimately is who I am. What is that saying? What you do by yourself when no one's looking is who you really are. Yeah, that's, that's your thinking patterns. Jesus said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's a powerful, high standard, the highest standard possible. That, that I am to have the mind of Christ. When I process things, whether it's music, whether it's attitudes, you name it, I need to be having the mind of Christ. Philippians, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just and pure and lovely and of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, what? Think on these things. First Peter, he writes, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober. Grab a hold of what you're thinking. Analyze them, Apostle Peter says. Analyzing music. The devil uses a lot of kinds of music to put people into this alpha state where we're just chilled out or perhaps we're in a frenzy and not analyzing what's coming in. And we'll spend some time thinking about that as we go along. Because we can think, we will make choices. Okay, God has made us creatures of choice. Joshua said, as for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. Because we can think, we will make choices, making us responsible for the analysis of anything that comes across our way. I want to say something here at the beginning. I'll say it again. If I mention any names or reference any kinds of music, I am not judging the people. I want you to understand that very, very clearly. I can't judge your motive. You can't judge mine. I can't judge any singer. That's God's job. But if he produces a CD that he wants my children to purchase and listen to, I am responsible to judge that. Right? Not the people. Not the people. But what is produced. So I want to, I want to make that clear. Okay? Uh, many times I hear people talk about me. Oh, you're judging that person or something. No, 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 I'm not. I hope they all get to heaven. God's responsible for that, not me. But we are to judge the elements of music that's in front of us. Our goal this evening is to allow the Lord to give us some clear direction through His Word as to the characteristics of the music we allow into our churches, 
homes, and everyday lives. A few key verses. Ephesians, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. A couple things there. We've got a lot of action going on there. It's a commandment, first of all. We are to prove something. We are to test it. We are to analyze it. And we're supposed to decide what's acceptable to God, not what's acceptable to me. This isn't about what I like, because I can like an awful lot of music very quickly. And I had my journey through that. And we'll talk about that a bit tomorrow. But it's not about what I like. This is about what God would deem acceptable. And we begin to analyze that. We're to prove that. We're to test that. Psalm 89. Blessed is the people that know the joyful sound. They will walk, O Lord, in the light of thy countenance. We're going to spend an awful lot of time tonight talking about the sound. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about the lyrics. A little bit. But this is in the context. We're assuming the lyrics are good for the most part. We're talking about the sound tonight. And the writer there says, Blessed are the people that know the joyful sound. So what are some elements of that, etc.? Is music important in our worship? Brother Floyd already referenced this, how often it's mentioned. Prayer is referenced about 100 or 501 times in the King James Version. Uh, pr- meditation, scripture meditation is referenced about 533 times in the King James. And music is referenced or mentioned about 500 times. Now, you've been taught from little on up how to pray. You close your eyes, you fold your hands, you bow your head, right? You spend a lot of time learning how to pray. We're also taught how to analyze scripture. That's part of your education. That's part of Sunday school. Part of what the preachers do. We help you learn to analyze. But how much time have you spent learning about music? It's equitable in terms of your devotions, in terms of congregational worship. It's on the same plane. And we don't tend to have a lot of instructions about music. And maybe there's varied, uh, varied reasons for that. I'm not sure. Zephaniah says this, The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. That's a promise, I believe, for the future. God singing over his people. Now, we hear a lot of beautiful music these days, but God singing is going to be something we can't even understand or today. We can't even rationalize what that's going to sound like, to have God singing over his people. We're commanded to sing. Is there any among you afflicted? Let him pray. If he's any merry, let him sing psalms. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Sing aloud unto the God our strength. Make a joyful noise unto the God of Jacob. And the list goes on and on and on. As Christians, we're commanded to sing. This is not an option for us. It is something we are to do. Philippians 1, 9 and 10. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. I talked to a young man many years ago, and uh, we started talking about music, and we were on a choir tour, and we were in the back of the bus, and he said, you know what, he left. He said, I don't want to know, because I might have to change what I listen to. At least he was honest. What he didn't want was the knowledge, because once you have knowledge, you have no choice but to make a judgment call. So, Apostle Paul says, I want you to abound in knowledge and in judgment so that what? So that out of that, you can approve what's good and make a wise choice. Approving things that are excellent. 1 Thessalonians, prove all things and hold fast to that which is good. 
Now, if you're going to hold fast on to something, you've got to find the good stuff, right? You've got to hang on to what's good. Probably the biggest question you have to answer in your mind is this one right here. Is music neutral or amoral? There's many Christians today that say, yes, it is neutral. It doesn't matter what the music is. None of that matters whatsoever. All that matters is the lyrics. Most of the people in the world, though, would say no. That yes, music does have a moral connotation to it. All through recorded history, no one has said that music is neutral until the 1960s. What was happening in the 1960s was we had a lot of young people leaving church. And the American churches said, we got to do something to keep our young people. So there was people interested in the, the whole contemporary Christian rock movement of the 60s. And they said, this is how we're going to do it. We're going we're to get this music started. We don't want to lose them. We want to be relevant. We need some kind of pop music that will keep, keep our young people. And that was the start of the CCM movement. But for them to be able to do that, they had to say that the music doesn't matter. This quote here, I'm going to give you a lot of secular quotes. Most of the quotes I give you tonight are secular uh, because they're not, they're not giving an ideology. They're not trying to support something. They're just stating this is what it is. These ladies are therapists at a university. They work with children and so on. This is what they say. Music is not just a special part of life. It represents life itself. From it, we receive inspiration, excitement, and emotional enrichment. With it, we create and communicate and express who we are. Well, that's character building right there. And again, they're not Christians. They're not trying to support an ideology. They're just simply saying, this is the power of music. This is what it can do for us. Isaiah 118 says, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And so tonight we want to spend some time reasoning together and thinking about some things. Again, I don't have all the answers, uh, but I would like to sh share some things with you that, may, that, Lord willing, can be of help to you. Is music neutral? Well, there's a man by the name of Elvis Presley that you might know, and there's a story about him I want to tell you. It's from a book, um, a fascinating book, and I, off the top of my head, I forget, forget what it was. Uh, but J.D. Sumner and the Stamps, uh, the Southern Gospel Quartet, backed him in, in his rock concerts in the 60s. So J.D. Sumner and Elvis were really good friends. And J.D. tells a story. Prior to J.D. Sumner and the Stamps, the uh, Imperials had, or another Gospel Quartet, they had backed up Elvis, and they moved away from Elvis and stepped into the CCM music. And they made a recording of this, this Christian rock stuff. So they sent one back to Elvis. Now, J.D. Sumner said, this is what he said, Elvis took that record, put it on the record player, and he began to listen to it. Shortly after that, he took the record off, his, off the record player and he broke it across his knee. And this is what the king of rock and roll said. He said, if they're going to sing rock, why don't they sing rock? If they're going to sing gospel, why don't they sing gospel? The king of rock and roll made a very distinct line betwixt what is Christian and what is not. There's our book. Sorry, Hungry for Heaven. Let me give you some other quotes from some men from that era. A Ray Charles, who was a jazz legend, he was a, um, a jazz musician in the same time period as Elvis. Look what he says. He says, to have played jazz in a church would have been an abomination. If I go into a church, I am deadly serious. Everyone must stand alone at the time of judgment. Since I play jazz music, I won't record a religious album because I was brought up to believe that you can't serve two gods. 
If you're going to play the blues, then play the blues. If you're going to do religious music, then do religious music. It may be antiquated. I don't know. But I still feel the same way today. And that was in 1981. He said you can't do both. He has a fairly high moral standard here, doesn't he? I hope he lived up to it. I don't know if he got saved at the end of life or not. But he says, when I go to church, I'm, I'm before, this is serious business. And I'm not going to bring my blues into this. It doesn't belong here. Does music communicate? Does music itself communicate? Well, we're going to spend a little time here. I want you to close your eyes. And I'm going to play something for you. And then we'll talk about it. So close your eyes. Any feeling? You open your eyes. Any feelings uh, from that? Oh, there we go. What what came to your mind when you listened to that? Somebody, quickly. Classical, okay. A band, excellent. Okay, good. What else? Uh, perhaps a parade, a circus, a marchy marchy feel, perhaps royalty, depending where you're at. American patriotic patriotism. Now. Some other cultures might not identify with that, but it, that certainly connects with us. Now, I knew what you were going to say. I, put, I mean, I put that up there before you said it. Okay, close your eyes again. What comes to your mind? Absolutely. The bad guys around the corner. Sure. There's suspense there. Again, I, put, I knew what was coming. Okay, close your eyes again. Adjectives to that. What? Worship. Okay. Wedding. Excellent. Yes. That one's up here. Relaxed. Sure. Very peaceful. American wedding. That's canon indeed. Many of your weddings use that today. Sure. Now, what did we just do? We went through three very distinct emotions without one word being spoken. Right? And we all felt the exact same thing. Because that communicated with you. Not a word was said. Tool number one. Music is a language in and of itself. It just is. It communicates. There is a man, a brain specialist. He says this. He's worked with brains. He says, music triggers a flood of human emotions and images that have the ability to instantaneously produce very powerful changes in emotional states. Take it from a brain guy. In 25 years of working with the brain, I still cannot affect a person's state of mind the way that one simple song can. And we just did that. 
if I kept playing that scary stuff and you kept your eyes closed, I probably, you know, etc. We, we could do something with that. We're going through some very strong emotional states. He says, I can't do it like one simple song kid. 1993, Reader's Digest, there was a study uh, by a communication psychologist, and he began to study communicating. And he said this. He said, words communicate 7% of what you're trying to say. Your voice inflections, how you use your voice is 38%, and your facial expression is 55%. So ultimately, that's 93% of your communication is outside of what you actually say. So my wife, I come home from work, and I ask my wife if she had a good day, and she says, I had a lovely day. Is that what she had? No. She's communicating to me exactly the opposite by her voice inflections in her face. It had nothing to do with her words. She told me she had a good day in her words. That's not what she communicated. During a 1993 interview, Michael Jackson, who's gone now, explained the reason for some of his filthy sexual gestures during his concerts. This is what he said. He said, it happens subliminally. It's the music that compels me to do it. You don't think about it. It just happens. I'm a slave to the rhythm. So he, he would, in his concerts, he gets in that alpha state where he just lets his body do what the music asks it to do, and he said, it just happens. And that was one of the reasons he was popular. Verse in the Scriptures, Isaiah 23. And it shall come to pass in that day that Tyre shall be forgotten 70 years, according to the days of one king. After the end of 70 years shall Tyre sing as a harlot. Now that tells me there there's a way to sing like a harlot and a way not to sing like a harlot. Is there a way a harlot dresses versus the way she does it? Absolutely. And the Bible's making a comparison here. You can sing like a harlot or you don't have to sing like one. What does that sound like? Well, I'm not exactly sure, but maybe we'll, we'll explore that a bit. Music makes its mark. Each medium of communication leaves its mark by altering our institutions and personal attitudes and values. This is from long before the smartphone. Uh, I would like to say the smartphone and, and our communications, that, those are, that's also a medium that is majorly impacting us and altering us if we're not careful. I use one too. I'm not passing judgment. I'm saying it's easy for that to alter our personal values. Music is a method of communication, and each method, each medium of communication does alter who we are. Plato said long before Jesus, let me make the songs of a nation and I care not who makes its laws. He said, I don't care who the president is or who the king is. Uh, if I can make the music, I can run the country. Definitely some moral judgment calls there. One man says that music has the power to form character. Now, this is just a man's quote. Maybe that's not absolutely true. But again, he's, not trying, he's secular. He's not trying to prove a point. He just says that music can do that. It can form character. I'm assuming he means for the good or for the bad. Here's a quote that I found very, very insightful. This is one from a Christian perspective. Uh, she said this. Worship this is 1995. So this is a good while ago. Worship practices that only evoke good feelings and thereby foster a character that seeks instant gratification might be enormously successful at first. But the cost, though not immediately obvious, may be high. The very methods that attract crowds might also prevent the development of habits of reflection and learning. 
a focus on self and feelings limits the nurturing of God, godly and outreaching character. We're about 15 minutes from the Creation Music Festival, which is the biggest contemporary Christian music uh, concert on the East Coast. Uh, we're about 15 minutes from there. And that brings about, I, I think, maybe 100,000 people or so through there. Uh, I believe it's June or July every year. And they come through there. Um, now, I'm not passing judgment. God can use what he wants to use. My dad tells a story of a man who had walked away from God. He went into a bar, and the barmaid made a comment to him that made him think, and he turned around and got his life right. Now, does that mean I can be a, send my daughter and let her be a barmaid? No. God used the barmaid. So if God wants to use the Christian rock concert 15 minutes from us, he may. But that doesn't mean I should be a part of it. What happens at that concert is um, they have, of course, the, the whole emotional movement of the music, and then Sunday morning they have a mass baptism where if you want to be baptized, you can be baptized. And Lord willing, that's real. My question, though, is this right here. What are they going to do when they go home? If that's the music and if that's the level of their, of their uh, commitment, she says the very methods that bring 100,000 people are the same methods that prevent reflection and learning and discipleship. Quote from a professor at Boston College, again, not a Christian. He says this, Rock confirms the young people's right to have and express strong sensual emotions. The message is your feelings are sacred and nothing is said above them. This is, is in essence, all that Rock is about. He says Rock can't be made respectable. The music will simply subvert the words. No matter how many reforms are attempted... Rock and rap will always gravitate in the direction of violence and uncommitted sex. The beat says, do what you want to do. Again, he's not defending anything. He's simply saying, this is what this is. Another quote, musician, music critic from the New York Times. So when we play music, you also embrace a style. A style suggests ways to sit, ways to sing, ways to feel the rhythm. It also suggests ways to think. A style even defines a musical community, a group with shared notions about music and its purpose. The shared style allows for musical communication without misunderstanding a common sense of what is being said and why. So if I was to go down to Nashville, put on some cowboy boots, jeans, a big old Stetson hat, and an acoustic guitar, and walk down the street, do you think I would connect with a whole bunch of people down there and they would know exactly what I'm about? Yeah, absolutely. Or I could go to Nashville, put on a bunch of black leather, put a couple tattoos on, a lot of black makeup. I could walk down the street and also connect with a whole bunch of people. The style of music almost forces a particular style of dress, etc., and ways to sit and sing and ways to think. So I'm going to show you a couple pictures. I'm not judging these people. I just want to use it for an illustration. This is Skillet, one of the most popular Christian rock bands there is today. This is their uh, picture from the 21, I'm a little out of date, the 21 tour. Uh, do they sing, I told you what they sing. Do you think they sing country? Do they look like they'd sing country music? Think? No, I don't, I don't think. Black lipstick, et cetera, we'll take them off there. Uh, no, they're identifying with Christian rock. This is Toby Mac. Now, he does hip-hop. Does that fit his clothes? The flat hat? Uh, the... Little hat down here, the sunglasses, the loose tie. That's the hip hop. 
very distinct from that. But it's because of the style of music he does. What about these guys? What do they sing? Christian country, right? Uh, they got the belts and the hats and the, the jeans. I'm, I'm just simply saying that the music, that the style of music, and, and by the way, this is totally aside from, these, the, all three of them could be singing Amazing Grace. This has nothing to do with text, nothing whatsoever to do with text. Solely on the style of music and what's being communicated. By the way, if you were, like tonight there was, uh, you got a lot of musical things that happen down here in this area. So if there was five different musical things going on in, in the area, and you were going to go to one of them, and they're all singing Amazing Grace, what would determine where you went? Not the, not the words, not at all. Only the style of music. Only the style of music. That will determine where you go. This man from MTV says, which was a, one of the worst things that happened to American culture in the 80s, he says, music tends to be a predictor of behavior and social values. He says, you tell me the music people like, and I'll tell you their views on abortion, whether we should increase military arms, and what their sense of humor is like. Maybe this is a little bit of a stretch, but basically he's saying, you tell me what kind of music they listen to, and I can tell you who they are and what they think and, and their value system simply by the music they do. So what kind, of, what kind of person am I? What am I thinking about? Where do I fit in, in this whole style discussion? Those are questions you have to answer. I'm not going to answer those for you. Okay, I, I just want to prod your thinking a bit, I guess. Okay, why don't we stand up, get a ch- uh, change of position a little bit, and let's sing um, Alive, Alive. Alive, alive, alive forevermore, my Jesus is alive. Alive, alive, alive forevermore, my Jesus is alive. Sing alleluia, sing alleluia. My Jesus is alive forevermore. Sing Alleluia. Sing Alleluia. My Jesus is alive. Thank you. You may be seated. Take your Bibles and go with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. First Samuel 16, and this is the story of David and Saul, one of their first meetings. And I'm not going to read it all for sake of time, but uh, chapter 16, verse the end of end of the verses or end of the chapter, um, Saul needs something. Okay, he's frustrated. He needs some music. At least that's what his counselor said. And he said, well, find somebody. And they, and they said, well, let's go find a cunning player on the harp. So let's go find someone who's good at this. This wasn't a haphazard player. This was someone who was cunning, who was skilled at playing the harp. Yeah, that son of Jesse. So they go out and get David. They bring him in. 
And he sits before Saul and he plays. Verse 23. And it came to pass when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, that David took a harp and played with his hand. So Saul was refreshed, was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. Now, I'm not sure what an evil spirit from God is. I'll let you define that because I'm not sure. But that's what it says. So we'll take it for what it's worth. Something was heavy on Saul's mind, and David took a harp and he sang. No, he played. And when he played, three things happened. Saul was refreshed, he was well, and he was spiritually blessed by this evil spirit departing from him. Based on the fact that David played. I don't think that was rock and roll. But three things, that three effects of music. First of all, physical. Music affects us physically. What kind of body language comes with the music? What kind of motion do we want? Or what kind of motion does the music we listen to want from us? Well, rock and roll came, when rock and roll came along, this has been some prior, but primarily rock and roll, they switched things up on us. Um, and we call this syncopation. Rock beats are normal accented rhythms. If you're doing a four-point pattern, it's simply one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. And the syncopation flips that till we get an accent on one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Um, this technique tends to um, connect with the body in a wrong way, which we're going to get to. Now, when we sing a song like Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee, that song has a lot of rhythm, but it's proper. We sing, Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee. Now, try to reverse that rhythm. Joyful, Joyful. I can't even sing it for you. Try to put the accent on the wrong beat of that song. You can't do it. But that's what rock music does. When we sing Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee, we um, often, you know, someone, maybe your hand, your fingers will tap, and so on. It appeals to the rhythm, but it's a proper rhythm. Let's think about Jesus Loves Me a bit. Um, proper rhythm for Jesus Loves Me. Jesus, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And Rock's going to flip that and go, Jesus loves me, this I know, ho, for the Bible tells me so, ho. Doesn't work very well. What about this one? Uh, Hip-hop tends to do this, the accent beat three. And so you have, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, this one. That groove just shows up right there. Now, I wasn't even singing. But it's right there. Why? Because we're accenting the wrong beat. Tool number two, if the motions are wrong, so is the music. Because it is the music which causes the motion. For you with young children, this is huge. Your children will, I guarantee you, will be honest. So if you're not sure about it, crank it up and see what their little bodies do. If it's appropriate, fine. If not, then no. Wrong rhythms tend to communicate with the center of the body. Like I said, joyful, joyful, we adore that you might be tapping your toes, you might be tapping your fingers, but you don't have the sexual part of you moving. Wrong rhythms create, and your children will do it, an improper motion of the center of the body. Because that's what it's calling for. 
All you need to do is watch about five seconds of MTV, even a lot of modern Christian music, and you see exactly what I'm talking about, the improper emotion of the center of the, of the body. Have you ever seen someone walking down the street with their little earbuds on? You can't hear anything, but you see them or sitting in their car doing their thing. What, what are they responding to? Not the text. It has nothing to do with the words. Absolutely nothing to do with the words. It's the music. The music is creating a particular emotion. Some early rock and rollers knew this. One, one group said this, by carefully controlling the sequences of the rhythms, any pop performer can create audience hysteria. We know how to do it. So in Phoenix, this was probably the 60s, they created a riot. They engineered their music that they wanted to see if they really could do this, and they did it. One man said, one of the reasons we're successful is that we're able to keep the music hard and direct so that it communicates directly with the body. It bypasses the thinking and the analysis, goes straight to your body, and that's why people like it. So are drums wrong? I'm going to play you three examples of drums, and then we'll talk about them. Um, first one. That's a march that the military would use. That's one, two, three, four. That's, you know, okay. What about this one? All that is a drum set. But what emotions would be evoked by that? I'm not going to do it. But what would it look like if I was grooving to that? What about this one? same scenario. My point is, it's not about the instrument. I did it with my voice. It's about what you do with the rhythm itself. Whether the instrument is a set of drums, or whether it's your voice, or whether it's a piano, etc. What do we do with it? Where's the emphasis? What is the motion that wants to show up with the music you listen to? Tool number two. Secondly, music affects us mentally. Um, one person said, all music expresses emotion and evokes emotion within us. It connects with us. When music is shared, the listeners are invited to empathize with the composer's experience and emotions and add their own. Now, the word empathize there is pretty important. I can sympathize with you if your father has passed away because my dad's still alive. I can't empathize with you, right? Because I haven't gone through the same thing as you have. They're saying, this quote is saying, again, a secular source saying, music allows us to actually feel what the composer is experiencing and the emotions they want you to feel. Music is definitely an art, but it's a bit unlike the graphic arts. We can very readily agree what is improper. If, if I came up here and showed you a bunch of pictures, some of them are inappropriate, some are not. We would all agree on which ones are inappropriate and which ones aren't. It's very easy. It's right in your face. Music's a bit more subtle than that, but perhaps more powerful because music makes you move. Music makes you dance. Music can move you physically. A picture doesn't do that. There was a man, high school student, so I'm proud of this high school student from Virginia. 
uh, I would spend some time with this story. This is a fascinating story. David Morrill, uh, probably about 25 years ago. He's in Virginia Beach, I believe, down in Virginia. And he was interested in music and how music affects things. So he was very perceptive. He did a really good job in his experiment. He got 72 white mice. They came in 72 different boxes. And he took them home to his basement. For one week, they were allowed to adjust to his basement together. After that, he took each of these critters, all 72 mice, and this would take a long time, and ran them through a maze three times in a row and and measured how long it took for these mice to get through the maze. On average, it took about 10 minutes to get through the maze. That's just the beginning of his experiment. Then he took these three mice, he divided them into groups of 24. One group he exposed to Mozart, to classical music, for three weeks, 10 hours a day. The other group he exposed to no music at all. That's the control group. Nothing changed for them. The other group he exposed to rock music for 10 hours a day for three weeks. After the three weeks, he brought them all back out and he ran them back through the maze again. Um, In their 12th and final run, the unexposed mice, the control group, only needed about half the time. They got to where they could get through it in about five minutes instead of 10 minutes. He would put, I'm assuming, a piece of cheese or something at the other end and they'd find their way through So they got used to this maze, and they got through in five minutes instead of ten. The classical mice that had been listening to classical music got through that course in a minute and a half. The hard rockers, well, you can guess. They beat themselves black and blue as they lurched through the maze as if they were drunk, stumbling into the walls, even though these poor rodents only needed ten minutes to complete the task before the rock music. Now it took them about a half an hour. Twenty times more than the group that had been exposed to classical music. He also noticed that the, the rock and roll mice did not even lift their noses to analyze where the cheese was. They just stayed. Why? Because that off rhythm is totally opposed to the normal rhythms of the heart, etc. And these little critters couldn't handle this. Well, he, uh, he brought them all back together and he threw them all back together. He's going to take them back to the pet store. I don't know if the pet store was going to take them back or not. And do you know what? The, ro- the hard rock mice started to beat up on the other one, so he had to separate them again. Now, he showed his findings to the scientific community, and there was some scientists who said, did not, we're not interested in hearing the truth in the, in the, in the experiment, so they, we're going to do this ourselves. They did it, and the exact same thing happened. And they were scientists, so they were absolutely able to analyze the brains of these little mice, and the brains of the mice that had been exposed to the, the rock and roll actually had literal physical branching in the brain that was brought on by that music. It was affecting that frontal cortex, as it were. Now, I don't know how big a a mouse brain is, but it's not very big. And if music can alter that little thing, what about you and I? This Klein doctor traveled around. He's a researcher in neuroscience. He went around the world, and he took with him samples of music, and he went into all the cultures, and he hooked these people up, all different cultures, all different languages. He hooked them up to a brain machine and played them different types of music. Now, most of them were not used to, I mean, this was all different styles from all different places. But this is what he said. He said that all people responded to color and music in the exact same way on the brain level. Obviously, someone in Africa doesn't know what American music is, so they wouldn't understand what we just listened to here. But he's saying on a brain level, the way the brain responded, all cultures, no matter where they were from, responded to color, literal color, and music in exactly the same way on a brain wave, on the brain level. 
All human beings respond to visual and audible stimuli in the, exactly the same way. The same imprint is made on the brain, and language and culture had no bearing on what, how the brain handled the music that he was playing for them. Another book that I found a bit fascinating, at least sections of it, it's quite a deep read. Uh, this man said, he says, they've also shown that the driving drum rhythms in excess of three to four beats per second will put the brain into a state of stress, regardless if the listener likes or dislikes the music. When the brain is in a stressful state, it will release opioids, a group of hormones that function like morphine, to help return itself to normal equilibrium. These op opioids, when experienced off enough, can be addicting, and the listener seeks for a high again. So he's, he's talking about what, what do drugs do? They release, your body takes them, your body goes into a bit of a stress, releases all this good feeling stuff and you get a high, but then your body puts, your brain puts up some gates and so the next time or later on you're going to need a little more stuff and a little more stuff because you want to get that same experience. He's saying music does the exact same thing. So it can be addicting and you have to get more and more of it to get high. He also says these steady drum beats release in the body gonadotrophins or sex hormones which enhance sexual arousal. Now, in the 60s, I'm going to play you one secular example, and this is it. Everything else that I play you uh, tonight will be Christian. This is a duo from the 60s, the Beach Boys kind of stuff, uh, the, the beach music of California in the 60s. I don't know who's who, but one of these men said, the throbbing beat of rock provides a vital sexual release for adolescent ad audiences. Really? Now, I want to play you what they sound like, and it's child's music. That doesn't have near the driving rhythms that are around us in our culture today. But he said that right there gave our young people a vital, vital sexual release. So what you have at one of those concerts is the brain in a bit of an alpha state where you're just kind of chilling out. It's also being put under stress by that music. It releases those gonadotrophins, and you have this sexual release. Is that what we want for our children? Again, that has nothing to do with the text. What about putting in earbuds? And I know, I think Bose has some earbuds that are, what, 300 bucks or something. They probably sound incredible. You put yourself, put the thing in your ears and shut your eyes. You are in a space. That's amazing. That you're creating. You're going to affect your mind with what you put in that space. Anything that affects you physically and emotionally. We had an emotional experience here. You got scared, as it were. You relaxed. We, we got happy. We experienced something emotional. And we know that music creates a physical response. Anything that affects you physically and emotionally will affect you spiritually. There's no other options. What I eat affects me, right? How I, what I look at affects me emotionally and physically, perhaps. And it's going to affect me spiritually. There's no choice in that. Because we are physical and emotional beings. And the evil spirit departed from Saul. Now we know Saul didn't have a good end. But in this time space, when David played, he was relaxed. And the evil spirit departed. Music notifies Joshua. If you go to Exodus 32, and I'm just going to tell you the story quickly. They're coming down off the mountain the first time after you have the Ten Commandments. And we get halfway down the mountain and Joshua says, wait, I hear something. 
And Moses agrees. They stop and they listen. And Joshua says, it doesn't sound, it sounds like war, but it doesn't sound like they're winning. It doesn't sound like they're losing, but they're singing. So he makes the analysis that it sounded like war, and then he says they were singing. So whatever the children of Israel were doing around that golden calf down there, whatever they were singing sounded like war. I don't think they heard the words at the distance. They were up on the mountain, but they heard something that sounded like war. Is evil distinguishable from good by sound alone? Can godliness and ungodliness be perceived purely from sound? I, have a, I used to play an example. I don't anymore because of the uh, nastiness of it. But back when my older boys were little, we went to Burger King for some reason, and we got them a children's meal for some reason. And in that was a CD. It's called Dance Dance Revolution. I believe it's a, uh, a video game these days. I think it probably was introduced. That would have been probably 2007, 2006. So I got this CD. Okay, I'll see what it sounds like. So I took it home. I have a, had a pretty good sound system. Popped that CD and started playing it. My little boys were beside me. And we got to one particular song that scared them. It was evil from top to bottom. And they didn't have to understand it. The text fit it so well. The lady was singing in a very sexual voice uh, something about let the music fill your soul, let your body take control. It was evil. And I used to play it, but I don't anymore because of that fact. I, 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 it was very easy to determine it was ungodly. This then takes us, though, to perhaps another very important question, and that's this. Whoa, sorry. What's more important, the words of the music? Do you have a good answer for that? Well, I don't know. I'm not sure that I do, but I, I remember reading in a book, and I would highly recommend this. Um, back in the 50s and 60s, Lancaster Mennonite Conference down here, published something they called The Music Messenger, and it was a uh, bi-monthly, I think, or else quarterly little paper that you get in your mailbox, like we do, about music and song leading and all that good stuff. And it was a fascinating little paper. Well, Eastern Mennonite Publications took all 10 years and put it in a book. You really should buy it if you ever see it, called The Music Messenger. It's a great little resource. So I was paging through that one time, and uh, I ran across uh, the man, um, this question, and he said, oh, that's an easy answer. I really? So I read the article. And this is what he said. And I think it's a great answer to a tough question. He said, when the music, when a song is new, the music is the most important. As a song settles into our hymnals, into our churches, the text becomes more important. If I asked you about Amazing Grace, you would tell me about the text. We just would. It's part of us. But when that song was written, without the music, we wouldn't have Amazing Grace. Without good music, there would be no song like Amazing Grace. That new song book you just got is wonderful. There's tons of music in there you probably don't know. When the song leader gets up and says, we're going to learn this song, what do you think about? Not the words. And that's great. You've got to think about the music if you're going to sing. You can't make music if you don't look at it. But if you sing that song every Sunday for a month or two, you know what's going to happen? The focus will shift from the notes to what we're singing about. I'll guarantee it because you become familiar with it. So initially, the music is what's important because it gives it wings. But after a while, the text begins to impact us. And I think that's a, a great answer to a very difficult question. Now, we usually talk about those 
about this in the context of a musical style. So I'm going to play you an example. This is from Casting Crowns. I will mention them uh, primarily because they're one of the groups that infiltrates our conservative circles about the most because they sing really good text. They're very blatantly Christian, if I may use that word. Very distinctly. It sounds like it comes right out of the Psalms. They don't sing this crossover stuff that you're not sure whether they're singing about Jesus or about a lover. They sing good text. So they are really amongst us. But I want to play you an example. And if you can get the words, the words are great. But the music overrides the text. God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you, oh my soul. I thirst for you, my body aches in a dry and weary land. I can get into that in about five seconds. If I would have been, what would have been the body motions with that if I had a guitar in my hand? What would I have been doing? Is it my fingers and toes? No, it's my midsection, right? If you ever watch them play, it's inappropriate motion. I'm not judging them. Please, please, please. Not at all. If someone was outside here right now, did they hear the words? No. They heard that driving rhythm. I was, as a young person, in the middle, well, it was before I was really in any, I, I listened to Southern Gospel, that's what I grew up on, that's what I had. There was a young fellow in, in, lo, in town, he was a bad boy, he was a town bad boy, everybody knew it. He lived up, up from us a bit. One time I, pull, I was pulling into town at the stoplight, and he was on the, um, on the sidewalk in his bike. And I don't know what possessed me, but I had some Southern Gospel on with a pretty good rhythm. I turned it up, and I looked at him, and he looked at me and went, that hit really hard. He didn't hear the words. He could have cared less. He heard a rhythm that connected with him. Yeah. Now, I don't know where he's at today. He was in and out of prison. Really sad situation. But I certainly didn't leave a testimony for Jesus Christ that day. I don't care what the words were. Because that rhythm overrides the words. Tool number three. Music comes as a package. Some Christians say, well, I want to defend contemporary music. I can listen to the words. I'm not going to listen to the music. It won't affect me. There's others that say, well, I want to listen to secular rock and roll, so I'll just listen to the music. I won't listen to the words. Well, you can't have it both ways. It comes as a package. Filtering is impossible. I like good, true, and false questions at school. A good, true, and false question is 95% truth, at least 5% error. But if you put true down there, you're going to get it wrong, right? You reject the whole statement based on that little bit of error. How about, I'm going to start a salvation cigarettes company. Um, I'm going to put tracks in every box. Every box will be covered with John 3.16. Um, we're going to market this to all the people that smoke so that we can get the scriptures into their hands. Does that work? 
How about a John 3.16 beer company? We're going to get, do this in a big way. Again, we're going to get to all the people that drink. We're going to make sure the scriptures are everywhere in their faces when they buy our product. Everywhere. They can't miss Jesus. How about a Gospel Illustrated Swimsuit Edition? We'll have the ladies hold up Bible verses. By the way, there was a man who was involved in pornography, supposedly became a Christian. He said, between me and my pornography, we're going to win people for the Lord. That could work. If I would hang up a poster over here, and on that poster was a terrible, filthy picture, on the front of that picture, John 3.16 was there. Would you let that hanging there because of John 3.16? No. How about a picture of Jesus on the cross or, or a beautiful scape, landscape, and I would put terrible curse words across it? Would you let that hang there because of that beautiful picture? No. No. You reject the entire package because half of it's wrong. Folks, we do the same thing with Christian rock and Christian country and Christian rap and Christian this and Christian that. We take the world sound that's as much from the pit as pornography is and we put Christian in it somehow and we expect that package to honor God and to be a powerful impact in my life. You can't do it. I'm not judging them, okay? I'm talking about the material here. I'm not judging the guys that build the salvation. We're judging the stuff. That's what we're analyzing. Let's talk about music just a bit. What, what is actually, what is music? And basically it's three parts. Um, melody, harmony, and rhythm. Melody applies primarily to the spiritual part of man, and I'll explain why. If you go home and sing Amazing Grace, are you singing alto? Tenor? Bass? If you're singing to the cows in the morning, and you're singing whatever song, are you singing a part? You're pretty good if you can. If you can sing bass the whole way through a, a song. No, what are you singing? The melody. The melody is the direct connection to the text. I can hum Amazing Grace and you will immediately think of the words. I'll guarantee it. You can't separate them because the melody is the direct connection to the words. Harmony connects to the mind because it takes you and me some thought process like we just did a little while ago. We look at the music, we look at those little shapes, and we sing. We have to put our, engage our minds in that. And that's great. That's good. That's a good thing. And ultimately then... Oh, by the way, the pilgrims sang melody unison on Sundays. They felt like singing parts was too pleasurable. I'm glad we sing parts, but it's just an interesting thing. They realized the connection of this to the seriousness of Sunday. And of course, we talked about this, the rhythm affecting the body. Uh, is my heart working? Is it? I mean, this is a definitive yes. Okay. How do you know? Can you see it? I'm, just, okay. I'm still alive. Yeah, right. Okay. So if, if, if you can see my juggler vein, and I'm standing here, uh, there'd be a problem, right? I need a nurse. Or veins across your head just pumping. If there is no rhythm, there is no music. You gotta have rhythm. I'm not debunking rhythm here tonight. Without rhythm, there is no music. Without your heart doing its thing, you're dead. Music is dead without rhythm as well. Too much, you're sick. 
It needs to be underneath. It needs to be there, but it needs to take its rightful place inside. Keeping that music alive, but not overriding it like we've been hearing this evening. But like I said, you've got to have rhythm. Now, syllogism, I like syllogisms as a school teacher. This is a logical formula or argument consisting of two premises and the resulting conclusion. So, for the Christian, any preoccupation with the body is sensuality. Whether it's sexuality, whether it's gluttony, whether it's intemperance, anything that we are, if we're preoccupied with something physically, we call that sensuality. Number two, or A, A plus B, rhythm is the sensual part of music. It's the part that connects to the body. It's the part that makes you move. The text doesn't do it. The harmony doesn't do it. The rhythm does. A plus B equals C. Therefore, music, which is primarily rhythm, is sensual. So let's think about a standard orchestra of 100 to 120 instruments. If you go to a classical program, you'll see strings, woodwinds, brass, and you'll see a little bit of percussion, some timpani, etc. From a numerical perspective, it's 2 to 3% rhythm. Practically, it's less than 1% because how often do those rhythm instruments play? Many times they're not playing. They're there. If you've ever gone to the Messiah, the very end of the Hallelujah Chorus, and I think Amen, the timpani plays a huge role in setting the tone for that maximum climax of music. But it's not, usually not playing. But it's there when it's needed. What about a standard rock band or a country band? What do we got there? Well, you have a rhythm guitar, which is rhythm. You have a bass guitar, which is rhythm. You have drums, which is rhythm. And you have a lead guitar, which might play some riffs and some so on. Uh, in a country band, you'd have a steel guitar, maybe a, a, a violin, a fiddle perhaps, etc. But numerically, it's at least 75% rhythm. On a practical level, it's very, very much rhythm. So you don't have to agree with this conclusion, but that's mine. Okay, whatever. Rock music, whether it's Christian or not, is sensual because it's primarily rhythm, which is the part that connects to me physically. And the part that's going to connect with your children and impact them. This man said he was a, an author, not a Christian at all. He says, rock and roll became a focal point for rebellion, and it must be understood in that context. Now, what do we do in a lot of our... Modern American churches. I'm not passing judgment. I'm making an observation. What is the primary method of evangelism? What he says is the focal point of rebellion. Now, does that work? This man, Stephen Miller, wrote to support contemporary Christian music. So he, he writes to say, hey, this, none of this is, there's nothing wrong with any of this. None of this matters. Look what he says. He says, using what is neutral in a society as a vehicle for the gospel is not only acceptable, it's sound missionary strategy. That is a true statement. Absolutely. The problem is, that's not true. This is not a neutral discussion here. These men won't tell you it's neutral. Uh, there's, um, I shouldn't even start the conversation. There was a rapper, uh, Alice Cooper, who's a man. I think he used, to, not a rapper, a rocker in the 60s and 70s, I think he used to bite off bat, bat's heads and crazy stuff like that in his concerts. And he would tell you what he's about. I'm about rebellion. I'm about sex. I'm about all that. That's what I am. No bones about it. He told you that. This man says, oh, that's neutral. No, that matters. And, if we're gonna, and this is very acceptable. 
a true statement, except for the fact that music society doesn't consider neutral. I'm going to play a few examples, um, pretty short ones, um, a rock example, a hip-hop example, and then an a cappella example. Um, and I want you to think about the rhythm. Again, think about the guys outside. Hopefully nobody's out there. I don't want to offend your neighbors or anything like that. But think about the rhythm superseding, overriding uh, the message of the text. done some studio recording and so it's not as hard as you might think to do that kind of stuff if you got the right equipment uh, anyways too much rhythm again I'm not judging the singers okay please that's between them and God but I get this one sometimes we hear people say well but they're so sincere maybe they are but scriptures in scriptures, truth is never divorced from sincerity. Joshua, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth. Sincerity is, must be connected with truth. First Corinthians, purge out therefore the old leaven that ye may be a new lump as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of what? Sincerity And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may prove that things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. What's preceding the sincerity? Knowledge and judgment and truth. Sincerity is not the, go, the, the, the what we determine uh, how we run life. How do you know I'm sincere? You don't. You really don't. And I don't know if you are. That is not the judgment call. The judgment call is truth, the word of God. The principles of the scripture. That's the judgment call. And Apostle Paul says, once you know that, then you can be sincere. Then you can be sincere. Notice that? What do you know? What are some other areas which may affect us musically uh, besides rhythm? We spend a lot of time talking about rhythm, and that's probably one of the biggest ones. But some other things have come along that affected us uh, perhaps in, in other ways, some techniques of singing, especially uh, scooping and crooning and sliding with your voice, uh, a very whispery, breathy, airy, sexy voice. 
okay? Those kind of sounds. You and I have this evening uh, some zones of interaction. Um, we have a social zone, which is arm's length, which is where we are right now. I can communicate with anybody on that social zone. We have a personal zone, which is less than arm's length, which might be your best friends, someone you can put their, your arm around them, etc. You communicate. Then you have one more zone. You have the intimate zone, which is two inches in touching, and that is only reserved for your wife or for your husband. Them only. What's happened at the advent of the microphone is it allows singers, there's Elvis, um, and this is a modern, very, very, very popular Christian artist in the present. Notice what she's doing. She has a microphone right against her lips. She's creating a very, very personal, intimate experience uh, with you. So if, if, um, is this, yeah, okay. So if I can walk up to any of you ladies and say, how are you? Or what if I, uh, how are you? I don't belong there. You should slap me and send me running. Okay? This little device allows me to enter that two-inch zone where I don't belong and create a very intimate experience there. I do some, like I said, I did some recording. Not so much anymore. I don't have time. But in one of my recording books at home, it talks about um, how to place a microphone to produce a particular sound. And, and uh, the author said, if you want a close, intimate experience... Put the microphone real close to the singer. He used the word intimate. And he wasn't a Christian. He's just saying, if that's what you want, this is what you do with the mic. You bring that right up there. And you create that space. What is the purpose of this little thing anyways? It's to amplify what's already there. Not create an experience. That's what this is for. But we tend to, most pop performers, almost all of them, Christian or secular, use a microphone inappropriately, and then they can create this very airy, breathy, right-in-your-face sound. And you don't belong, and uh, they don't belong there. This man said, again, not a Christian, all pop singers, male and female, have, express, have to express direct emotion. The voice is an apparently transparent reflection of feeling. It is the sound of the voice, not the word sung, which suggests what a singer really means. Maybe that's too strong of a statement. I don't know, but it, I mean, that's, that's pretty powerful. Because it's not what they're saying. It's what they sound like as to what they're communicating. So I'm going to play you four examples. Um, and one of them was number one in July. The other one was number one not too long ago in the, on the CCM charts. And a couple from the past. I want you to think about what the, not judging them, what the singer is doing with the microphone. What they're creating uh, by bringing that microphone right up to their lips. Couple years I've been on my own. Now I know that I'm not alone. You're giving me a reason to carry on, to carry on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, everything is different nowadays. I lost a few ones along the way. I had to learn to trust it'll be okay. It'll be okay. Changes what you see. 
rhythm but and this one is song leaders would sing at that level you couldn't hear them back there I mean they would have to be right here and you'd be able to hear them singing invading a personal zone an intimate zone that they don't belong in by the use of, of a microphone now you've been a patient group so just bear with me a little bit longer what about Christian country southern gospel this is where I grappled as a young man and I, I want to take you to some history and some of this history was pretty hard for me to accept a um, couple quotes. We tend to think of, well, I'll get to that. We tend to think of, you know, good old Stamps, Baxter music of the 20s, 30s, and 40s as kind of the root. This is really good stuff. Well, that was produced to sell a product. What happened was, before the advent of recording, if I published a songbook, like some of those men did, the only way to get the music out and heard was for a quartet to take it around and sing it, because... Uh, there wasn't recordings, there wasn't records. The radio was just beginning to blossom, but it was a little hard to get on the radio. So what would you do? You'd send these guys in, a, in an old car, four guys, and they'd travel around the countryside in the south primarily, and they would sing, your, sing good Christian music. Or your, but, but they could only sing your songs, nothing else. Had to be out of the songbook because you're selling their songbook. So the, the, kind of the root of that really is selling a product. They were selling the songbook. This is from a book, that same Hungry for Heaven book. This is really fascinating. These are quotes uh, from him in a lot of research here. He says, Hobie Lister, again, one of those good old Stamps Baxter men, if you recognize any of these names, this does go back pretty far. But, and Jay Cass, they formed the Statesman Quartet, which was to become one of the first supergroups of white gospel, catapulting the music to commercial acceptability and setting the style for the emergent rock and rollers bred on holy music. Think about what that is. He said that the Stamps Baxter music set the stage for rock and roll. Although much of, was made of the evils of dancing, show business, jukeboxes, and so on, the success of the gospel quartets was largely due to their presenting much of the same gloss and excitement in an acceptable context. The songs are about loving your neighbor, being holy, and not giving in to modern religion. That's the text now. But the music, the performance drew from blues, uh, pop, country, ragtime, and jazz. Elvis Presley grew up on these gospel music. That's why he was so connected to the gospel world. He had at least three, maybe four, southern gospel quartets that backed him up 
in all his concerts. I don't understand how that one works. I mean, his concerts were inappropriate. It, it was bad news, but these gospel quartets followed him around and backed him up. They were background vocalists for him, and he was good friends with a lot of them. Another quote. This man wrote Blue Suede Shoes, which is one of Elvis's popular, he had many popular songs, obviously. This is one of them. And this is what he said. He said, in the early days, gospel music had as much to do with rock and roll as anything else. We were all definitely inspired by gospel. That hand-clapping, deep southern style of singing goes right along with Don't Step on My Blue Suede Shoes. Gospel had a great input into rockabilly. See, that, that's hard on my roots right there. Because that good old Stamps Baxter stuff is what I grew up with. That was, that was the good music. This man says, no, that, that, that's where we came from. Ran into an article um, about 2000, 2000 uh, two th- yeah, it was 2000. I picked up a CCM magazine, which they don't publish anymore because of the advent of the Internet. But inside there was a, this picture was on, in the magazine. And I, I it really caught my attention. I was in the process of trying to think through some of these things. Now, what we have here is Petra, which was one of the first leading Christian rock groups that pushed their way into our churches. Not our churches, the mainline Christian churches. And then we have the Kingsmen, which is the good old standard Southern Gospel Quartet. These men were both inducted into the Gospel Music Hall of Fame in 2000. And by the way, Elvis Presley was inducted in 2002. Um, so I guess he fits in the Gospel Music Hall of Fame. Um, these, what I want you to think about is we have hard rock here, as hard as it got. And what most people would say, acceptable Southern Gospel music. Are they opposing each other on that picture? No. They're both happy because they got inducted into the Gospel Music Hall of Fame. The music of the Kingsmen is substantially milder. I understand that. But the mindset, the philosophy is the same. The Christian rockers will reach the young people. We're going to, from down south, we're going to reach whoever likes us. And, and the Kingsmen would never stand over here and point fingers at Petra as that's some kind of wrong music. They wouldn't do that. That's just your style. This is ours. But I would have grown up with the line that this is really bad stuff right here, and the Kingsmen were wonderful. I heard it preached one time as a young person that if you listen to Christian rock, you're going to hell. And I don't believe that. But I knew that preacher listened to Southern Gospel. That was a hard one. I mean, he preached strong. You listen to Christian rock, you are going to hell. I remember that because I cared about music, and I tuned into those statements. Wait, but, but he listens to this. It didn't line up. Bill Gaither says that music is amoral. Um, He was interviewed probably 10 years ago by Billboard magazine. Billboard magazine is a secular music magazine. Uh, It has nothing to do with Christianity. They just simply run all the music charts, etc. And he was being interviewed, and he had switched promoters for his um, uh, reunion tours that he does. And they quoted Gaither as saying, Gaither said this to Billboard magazine. He said, we're trying to look ahead and be ahead of the game. Now, if there was ever a time Bill Gaither should have stood up for Jesus Christ, it was when he was being interviewed by Billboard magazine. But he didn't. He said, this is a game. We'll stay ahead of the game. Now, I'll sing Bill Gaither songs because of what it is. It doesn't mean that his songs are all bad. But his approach has taken him down a long road from where he was in the 60s to where he is today because he says music doesn't matter. None of that matters. In the early days, there was a publisher of, gospel, of Southern Gospel Music said this. They said, Southern Gospel Music is a... So this would be the Stamps Baxter 
Family entertainment with a message. Entertainment that a fair or a civic organization can sponsor and not feel like they're getting too churchy. That sounds exactly like the contemporary music's approach today. Yeah, a fair, they can go sing at the local fair. They can go sing some other places because they're not too churchy. But they're good entertainment. The Florida Boys, another very popular group, one of the founders of the group said this, one thing we've never tried to do is get past the basic plan of salvation in our song presentation. Because when you do that, you're getting past our basic reason for existence. Our singing is for Christian entertainment and spiritual uplifting. Christian, Christian people need a form of wholesome entertainment which will help them forget their problems for a while. But when you start to trying to sell them a particular religion or your set of do's and don'ts, then I think we're stretching what we're trying to do. Remember that quote from early on. Music that is extremely popular, often that exact method will keep people from drawing from the, the path of discipleship. And that's exactly what he said. We don't want to get past the basic plan of salvation. That's all we're going to do. Nothing more. Because then people might get offended if we go further than that. Dad Carter of the Chuckwagon Gang said this. He says, this is the way I make my living. I'm an entertainer. So is there a big difference here between the Southern Gospel world and the Christian rock world? Again, yes, the music's different. I grant that. I understand that. But the thinking's the same. A lot of Southern Gospel groups have too much rhythm anyways. Often, often it's a piano and maybe a drum set and a bass guitar or something. That's kind of what they give their programs with. Um, but, but the thinking's the same. The philosophy's the same. I will say this, though. After doing a lot of reading on the early Stamps Baxter music, I would say there's more spirituality inside the Southern Gospel world now than there was in the 50s and 60s. There was drinking and womanizing and drugs all through those quartets of the 50s, 60s, 70s. So I think today's, I don't, I don't see, you don't see that in today's Southern Gospel. So I, I will grant that, okay? Um, but it's history I think we need to ponder and consider. The Southern Gospel world is the sound that has impacted us the most, our a cappella singing the most. We've been influenced maybe uh, on purpose, maybe inadvertently. Your children, we'll spend some time on this tomorrow, your children will emulate what you listen to. As a school teacher, you can pretty readily know what is listened to in the household by what the children sound like when they come to school. A first grader or a second grader will sound like what they hear at home. So if you listen to bluegrass, that's what they'll sound like. If you listen to contemporary, that's what they sound like because they emulate what they listen. They're so good at that. So this sound, the Southern Gospel world, has impacted us probably the most uh, in, in our sound and, how, and, and affected our churches. So I'm going to play a couple of Southern Gospel examples. Um, and I want you to think, this first one here is actually a Christian country example. It starts out with probably two guitars. I want you to think about the body rhythm, or the body language of these two acoustic guitars. Nothing wrong with an acoustic guitar. But... Think about what they would be doing if they were up here playing this. And then a few others um, where there's too much rhythm, rhythm that's overriding what they're singing about. Oh, sorry. There's some of those quotes I just read to you earlier.
Southern Southern Gospel Quartet song that's been popular recently. Now, a couple of acapella ones. Now, what do you think about these? Now, this is just sing, so there's no instruments here. They're not doing, they're doing some of the rhythm stuff, but some of these are not. They're just basic songs, but what they're doing is using the microphone inappropriately. You can hear them breathing. They're, they're in that intimate zone where they don't belong. Amazing grace. Sliding around here on this one. of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing, Alleluia, Alleluia, the burning sun with golden beam, the silver moon. <laughs> Someone like you cared for me. You put this love in my heart. I tried but could not refuse. You gave me no time to choose. You put this love in my heart. I want to know where the bad feelings go. When I'm depressed. All the texts are great. Nothing wrong with all the texts. But what are they styling them by? Last screen. I believe that God has created music as a vehicle to carry the message of the lyrics. Both must move in the same direction, and that's to honor and glorify Him. So I go away for a week, which I never have for my wife, and I come home, fly into the airport, and I go out to my car, and I'm going to head home. And my wife is waiting for me. Let's assume we don't have cell phones, so she doesn't know when I'm coming. Because that's a long time ago. And uh, 
What's she looking for? She's looking for that little red car. Does she care about the car? No. She cares about me. But if the car goes south when I live north, she's never going to get to me. She's never gonna, I'm not going to get home. The car has to take me where it's supposed to go. The car has to carry the text. Your music has to carry the text in a proper way, in the same direction, to honor and glorify God. Thank you. Um, tomorrow we're going to spend some time thinking about the good side of music, how it can impact us, some tools there. Um, and then tomorrow, tomorrow forenoon, before lunch, We'll do some singing, and I'm, I'm, I love the, my favorite songbook you just got. Um, so we'll do some singing out of that and talk about some, maybe some practical aspects of leading singing and so forth. Um, so come prepared to, to sing instead of just listen to me rattle for an hour and a half tomorrow morning. I always leave these wondering what people are thinking. Um, I want you to think. That's all. That's a big assignment. You don't have to draw my lines, but I want you to think. Because your children will be impacted. Your young people are being impacted by what they listen to. So think and evaluate. And don't be scared to set some lines. Um, I think there'll be some eternal benefits to creating some lines uh, that point our young people and our children towards God. Thank you very much. We'll give our time back to Floyd.